0: Thank you for joining us for Friends and Followers, a podcast brought to you by the Seton Shrine where stories of those who were inspired by Mother Seton's life and mission are shared. It is our hope that you might find inspiration as well and a deeper understanding about who Elizabeth Ann Seton is. And you can subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes. We hope that you enjoyed them. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. We have a special podcast today. This has been a long time work for establishing a meeting <laughs> yeah, with his the world of COVID. Officer, his sister, Mary Claire Hughes, and she is ninety six, going on ninety seven. She was born in nineteen twenty four. She said, "Yeah, and um, so we have we were finally able to interview her yeah. after a year. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was
2: really tough because with COVID restrictions, just being able to get anywhere near the sisters here, which understandable." Um, but we really wanted her story because she's so fascinating. Now, you'll hear, she doesn't think she is. But um, she just fell into place at the right times. So and She had those opportunities to be here during the canonization, to meet the Pope, to meet Mother Teresa, you know. And and yet those aren't the ones that she finds the most um, most interesting. So we'll let you, it'll be a little teaser here. but. Um, yeah we hope you enjoy listening to her we certainly did and we're hoping that there'll be more to come with her yeah i mean this
0: is just yeah, getting into it just a starting point with her we asked her if we could interview her again because she has so much more to tell but when you listen to this podcast you might have to turn it up a little bit um we did try to make sure that sister Mary Claire in as clearly as possible. But I guess right.
2: she's 36, but she does have a right. message to tell. Yeah, um, I mean, next year, at the end of next year, she'll be a sister for 80 years. And uh-huh. so she really encompasses what so many sisters have gone through, like she really can tell those stories. So we're definitely hoping that we can get into, like, how the sisterhood has changed,
0: their mission, their work. Oh, uh, there's so many topics so many right. But this one, we're gonna co- cover how she found
2: a friendship in
3: right. that's right. Enjoy, enjoy. So I was curious. I saw that you um, you became a sister in 1942. So that kind of stri- that's the year my mom was born. <laughs> so um, I was interested. But that was like great. Right, that was was that a tough time because that was right during World War II. I yeah. mean that
1: we're, we had been by President Roosevelt's decree, we entered the fray December 7th, 1941. Right, That right. was a Sunday afternoon, and we were out playing, and the extras came out. In those days, you didn't have television, so anything new came out in what was called an, an edition of the newspaper that was called Extra. Extra extra, um. <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it, extra, extra, read yeah. all about it. in the meantime, parents had gotten it on radio. Yeah. But that was a t- rough time because I already had one sister married. Another sister was gonna get married because I was leaving home and she wanted to do it before I left. And then I left and then two ma- two of our sons, <laughs> brothers were conscripted, and no child was at home. Oh, wow. That's how quick everything moved once we entered the war.
3: And you had already decided to become a daughter at that point? Okay, okay, that must have been scary.
1: Well, I felt felt more of uh, compassion for my parents than scared, because all of a sudden they have no, no younger child, no child at home. Yeah. And they had had six.
3: Yeah, wow.
1: And all six were somewhere else at this point. So I thought that was hard on them.
3: Did You stayed here in the United States, though, right? Did you go abroad during the war?
1: No, no, I stayed here in the States. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I was, um, I had my postulatum At an institution that's now uh, extant. Well, you know the word. (laughs) It was called Mount Hope. Okay. And it was a psychiatric hospital in Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. And we were parsons there from December 8th till December 12th when we took a little train and came up to Emmitsburg. And the train let us off at the foot of the avenue of the college. Oh. Did you know a train used to run along yeah, there? Yeah,
3: we have looked into that to yes. try to figure out where yeah. it went. It was, in
1: a, it was in a, you know, which has been filled in. But that train, the the girls in the college called it the Dinky. Yeah. <laughs> so I came to, uh, or they came up and down by Dinky. I went to Postulate Lake by car and came up here by car also i didn't ha- i didn't ride the dinky oh okay. so was that the first time you were here in Emmonsburg? oh no okay. i had an older sister who graduated from saint joseph's college in 1936
4: oh wow okay
1: and we used to come up on sundays to visit her okay uh, visit her not the sisters or right. not right wasn't even thinking of vocation at that point because Kitty, who was a sister at the college, was ten years older than I. Okay. And when you're young that's a big gap. Yeah. As we aged, we were very, very close. That ten year gap meant nothing. But in your teens, ten years, you know what that is. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You
1: both know what ten years in the teens mean
3: yes
1: yeah absolutely
3: like being a teenager we Um.
1: loved one another but we weren't close but i had another sister who was eight years older well those two catherine and margaret were very close and then there were two brothers and then myself and then another brother
4: oh
3: wow right in between the boys
1: (laughs) which left me without the (laughs) girls I had to use friends in the neighborhood, oh. or friends from school. Where are you from? Baltimore. Oh, You wow. can't tell my accent. <laughs> She's from Baltimore. Some people make fun of it, but it's all right.
3: No, yeah, Baltimore's a great place. I mean, you probably saw a lot of changes, though.
1: You know, I say a decade of my rosary every day for Baltimore.
3: Oh, Wow
1: because Baltimore was a great city, was. And we, the Hughes family, owe Baltimore a whole lot. It was our childhood neighborhood. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: We had friends, we grew up, and were able to go to the schools we wished to go to. I had to travel by three streetcars to the high school I chose. Three streetcars going and three streetcars coming home. Wow. But I wasn't afraid on the streetcars to be alone.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Now today I don't think our parents would let us travel that streetcar ride alone.
3: Right, yeah.
0: A couple years ago, I went to the Jewish Museum in Baltimore, but um, it's not just on the Jewish religion. It was really, they had a really nice exhibit about the culture of Baltimore and the different streets and their background and the marketplace and, you know, and it's just, it's so wow. different. guess like, yeah, you should go down there. It's really they did a fantastic job in just highlighting just the culture of the people, the different. It's like what do they call it? Um, a melting pot. It was like yes. almost oh, a melting yes.
1: pot. Every every little neighborhood was a different gener- a different nationality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Every neighborhood, but our corner grocer, he was not on our corner. He was street back from us, he was Jewish. And they were Orthodox. And we, the neighborhood children, went in there on Friday evening because at sunset their Sabbath begins and they can do no work, Orthodox Jews. Okay. At that time, I'm not sure what it is now. But we took out the trash, put the trash out. We turned the lights off, did anything that needed to be done because they were already preparing for the... Next day, Sabbath.
3: Wow, that's wonderful.
1: We were good, <laughs> that's wonderful. We were good neighbors. And, were, and like on Christmas day, you might get a dime or a penny in your stocking toe, because that's all your parents could afford in those years. Well, I went to the candy store, which was part of the grocery store, and Mr. Strauss immediately called my mother do you know that Claire's in here buying candy? <laughs> because he knew at home there would be boxes of candy because that was a Christmas in Baltimore. You had big boxes of chocolate candy. Oh wow. And they came fairly large at that time because there were larger families. right, right. And I we had another Jewish friend who was a supervisor at a department store. And my sister Catherine, Kitty as I call her, who was up here in college, invited her home for our Christmas. And she alighted from the streetcar at the end of our block with her son. And as they came down the street, he would look at the door and he would say, Jewish or Hebrew, Gentile, Gentile, Hebrew, Gentile. he knew by our decoration if we had a wreath he assumed we were gentiles and most of the time he was correct yeah because the jewish didn't celebrate christmas as we did right Right. so it was not uh, nothing was on their doors so that's how he did it (laughs)
4: well
3: can i ask how old you are pardon can i ask how old you are
1: oh sure I was born in November 1924. Wow. That makes me 96 on my way to 97. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. couple more years until I'm <laughs> the big 100. Zero zero. <laughs> if I get that far, you, you begin to wear out.
0: Yeah. But, but well, I have a question. So growing up in Baltimore and the bustling of the city life, and all the different nationality, but then you come to Emmisburg. Like, do you feel that that was a little bit of uh, like a a, a shocked, shock, to a yeah. cultural yeah. shock, because <laughs> you're going to rural area? Because That's this was still right. you were still here before even Route
1: 15 came along. Well, Route. Yeah. Uh, it didn't come through our property either. <laughs> right. Oh, I see. So as I went a, to high school which as I said was quite a distance from our home. I met and mingled with many different nationalities there so that the neighborhood nationalities of Baltimore were not uh, that strong to me as they would be to other people coming in the city because I had already met with all these different nationalities at high school. Um, and we had a, even though it was a three-car streetcar ride to high school, I could take another route and it was three buses to high school. When we got there, we enjoyed the mixture of the people, mm-hmm. of the girls. I just call them girls, even though I'm 96. <laughs> I'm still, they're still girls. And some of them still keep in touch. Most of them are in heaven. Yeah. And there was one who lived down in um, Westminster that was in touch until last year when she died. Oh,
4: okay.
1: So we formed great friendships in high school. I'm not certain if the youngsters do that today or if that's done more at college level. I don't know that.
4: I
3: think it depends. It depends. I, I have two friends that I, one of my friends I sat across from in first grade, and we've been friends ever since. So it's, it's a different kind of relationship. It's very comfortable. They know everything about you. You know everything about them. Mm-hmm. And So there's really not a lot of explaining that has to be done. They just know you so well. So it's definitely a gift, I think, to be able to have that.
1: Well, I came into my fourth year of high school And my sister said to me, Claire, are you going to join the community or not? The family thought I might because I stayed a lot after school working with the sisters, just on my own. There were a group of us, not just myself. And I said to her, well, Kitty, do you need that answer? Why do you need need to know? She said, well, If you are going, I will get married in late August, but if you're not going, I will get married at Thanksgiving. Her husband was already in a uniform. He was a doctor and he had been drafted. So I said, well, Kitty, maybe you better get married in late August. So that's how my announcement was made to the family that I really was serious about joining the Daughters of Charity when I had to admit I wanted to be in her wedding before I left home.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah. So you traveled around quite a bit before you ended
1: up here, right? Yes, that travel was uh, linked the different, different ministries I was in. Okay. I was in um, nursing service, and nursing school administration were linked together. In a three-year program of nursing, which was very current when I went into nursing, you had a director of the program She was over both nursing service and nursing school, and under her was a director for the school and a director for nursing service. Well, I was over both, and I liked both. So when I was asked to consider going to get my, finish my baccalaureate, it didn't bother me that I had to go to a school that might have both nursing service and nursing uh, school, and it didn't, Catholic University School of Nursing was a five-year program for a baccalaureate degree for nurses because so much of the academic time would have been taken by clinical practice. So they made it a five-year program. Today that is not true, it's a four-year program and they have less clinical practice and more academic knowledge in their curriculum. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: But I still enjoyed nursing and enjoyed the young women who wanted to be nurses. And in those years, it was a three-year program. Then I was asked by the community to go to Catholic University and get my baccalaureate in nursing. And I stayed on and got my masters
4: oh. in
1: in, baccala- in um, nursing. So by 1951, I think, 49 I had my baccalaureate and by 51 I had my masters. Okay. In nursing,
0: that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah,
3: right? yeah, oh yeah, that's a huge accomplishment. So I don't want to keep you too long today. So I want to jump ahead to when you came here. Did you were they already starting the process of Mother Seton's canonization, and you kind of came into that, or how did that work?
1: When I first came to Emmitsburg. To live here other than the formation period. I came to be a counselor on the provincial council. Okay. So I came to Emmitsburg from Saginaw, Michigan and at that time we were finishing the superstructure of the Basilica
3: okay so mid 60s yes
1: yeah and uh, I watched that conclude or I watched it be covered (laughs) and then then the dome being decorated from inside
3: that's so neat (laughs) and
1: one day the architect was announced and The provincial was busy at the time and she asked me if I would take care of him so I went (coughs) to the lobby and I met the architect and the chapel had he had not seen what the latest work had been done in the chapel now I am You will notice referring to it as chapel mm-hmm. because it was not yet a basilica. Right. Well, we stood at the doorway looking in at the chapel. And I looked at him after a while and a little tear was coming down his cheek. Oh. I, I guess an architect never knows exactly what the finished product will be like.
3: Yeah, Like an artist. And he evidently
1: was very happy that it was, happy with joy. He turned to me, and despite the tear, he said to me, sister, you have to get that railing up there painted the same as the basil- uh, same as the chapel. The wall railing in the dome,
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know that's a yeah. walk around railing, mm-hmm for maintenance and for protection, and safety. Right. It was painted a different color than the wall. Oh, I know what he wanted. He wanted the railing to match all the walnut doors. Oh. And one of them didn't, it didn't match. And he said, walnut will be walnut color if it's not true walnut. Well. You'd never know what was true, Walnut, and <laughs> what was real because we had excellent an excellent um, company building this building. And uh, as you have heard, I'm sure, they don't ever expect a building to be built as well as this one was built.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very well done. Have you ever been up on that walkway?
1: Yes.
0: Oh, <laughs> I have to. Oh, I have to. <laughs> if you're afraid of heights, you do not want to go up there.
1: I'm afraid of heights, but I wanted to at least go up and see what he was talking about. and So I had plenty of strong support <laughs> behind me coming up those steps. And <clears throat> you know, when you have support, you know you won't fall, even when you're frightened. You know you won't fall, right, but it right. doesn't always take away the fright so
3: so you kind of got here. things were starting to happen with Elizabeth by then, I think, right
0: well, it was uh, in in sixty nine sixty seven or sixty nine her body was possessed to the side altar
1: from the St Joseph chapel, right I
4: think
3: that
1: means made... the exhumation of her body from the little chapel in the, in the, um,
3: the mortuary chapel.
1: Yes. Was done on October 12th, 1962, I think, if you check your dates.
3: I think that's right. Okay. And so then she was on campus for a while, right? Yes. And then moved over here.
1: When she was Zoom that time is when they put her in that little golden coffin. Yeah. And it was interesting. When you would exhume a body as part of the beatification procedure, you have to have professionals there. And we had two pathologists who spread what was left of Elizabeth on a long board on um, Forget the name. What do you call the things that you put boards on? Oh, like um. Yeah, it's like a saw. Yeah. Oh, a ho- like
3: a sawhorse kind yeah, of. Yeah, like
1: thing. a sawhorse. Yes, sawhorse. Yeah. And they had it spread out in their shape that they wanted, and so there were all these bones spread out on this board. And one of the pathologists said, there is a phalanx of a toe missing.
0: (laughs) Sister Sally Thompson, I'm telling you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And of course we had all signed that we would not leave the site and we would not touch anything. Uh We had to do that. So he he looked at us And one of the sisters said, I think I can tell you where that is. I think I can find that for you. So she was permitted to leave, and we stood there in almost silence till she got back. And when she came in, she had a little container. And sure enough, it was the failings of the toe that was missing. And it was due to the... Too great devotion of some previous sister who was present at a former exhumation <laughs> who took that little failings, thinking probably that nobody would ever know. But thank God they knew where she put it and where it was. Oh, wow. Because that could have prevented the whole process from going forward. Oh, really? Oh, wow.
3: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
1: So it, we were very grateful that. But to get back to time, I am sure that was October of 62, but you can check it.
3: Right. No, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she came over here, Bridget was saying maybe around 67, 69, somewhere in there before her canonization, obviously.
1: she was above the altar in the college chapel first in that little golden coffin
0: mm-hmm. they're still there too Are you? that little alcove is still there yes. too
1: and then when she came over here <clears throat> i can't give you a date because i don't think i was here okay by then
3: but then you came back in the oh, yes. 70s before her canonization,
1: right? I came back in 62 and left in 83. Oh, okay. It's okay. a long time. <laughs> so I was here for her canonization.
3: Yeah, so tell okay. us about that. Was that exciting?
1: Oh, <laughs> amazingly so. Um, everybody who could possibly associate it with St. Elizabeth wanted to be there, uh, For, or I should say Elizabeth Seton, wanted to be there for her canonization, wanted to be in Rome. So when I got there, there were two sisters, our former visitatrix and her secretary. I guess you know their names. Eleanor McNabb Mm. and Mary Ellen Sheldon. And they had been given the tickets for the canonization to distribute. And they were working late in the evening, the night before, the evening before, trying to get tickets to everybody who wished them. And they worked late, late into the night doing that. And one of the CM priests happened to come by and he had a car. So he was dispatched with tickets to different places. But they worked late into the night before the canonization getting the tickets out to people. But you know the canonization of Elizabeth Seton was memorable for a number of events as far as I am concerned. And one of them is it was the first time a woman read at a Vatican Mass.
4: Oh, wow. Mm -hmm.
1: And it was Sister Hildegard Marie from uh, Convent Station, New Jersey. She did the readings of the Mass on the steps outside St. Peter's. It was a beautiful day, so the Mass was outside. That was memorable. Of course, hearing Pope Paul say, You know, Elizabeth or Anna Anna Elizabeth Seton is a saint. will never stop ringing in our ears. But another thing that made it very exclusively Americano and Romana was the fact that our Emmitsburg community chorus was there on the steps of St. Peter's, and they sang at that, sang for Pope Paul, and sang for the group that was. I didn't
3: realize that. The the
1: thousands that were united there on the steps. So it had a lot of wonderful memories, many memories.
3: And there was a, a lot going on here at the same time. I read something from a sister last night that they were all watching it, and they were all trying to find you, like they were trying to find you in the crowd (laughs) as they were watching the canonization. Um, Well,
1: as part of the canonization process, we meet with the Holy Father after the Mass, and it's traditional that we would present something. So he was admiring the different flags under which Elizabeth had lived Uh, when I was quite close to him. And finally he turned around and faced me, and I faced him. And I became thunderstruck because I was expecting him to have the normally dark brown eyes that I was used to Italians having. Mm forgetting for the time that Paul was from the North, and there were these beautiful blue eyes looking at me. And I was really shocked by that. (laughs) Just a simple thing, but something that simple takes on momentum and uh, importance. In the middle of a greater and bigger celebration,
4: right, right.
1: That's one of my main memories of the canonization of Saint Elizabethan. Meeting Paul VI and seeing his blue eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
3: So, what was the gift that you, um, that the daughters gave him?
1: The one I presented was a memorial coin of the beatification. Oh. And we had had them made. Uh-huh. And I'm sure you'll see samples down in the shrine. But we presented the Holy Father with a gold one. Oh, because wow. that would be in the Vatican archives forever. Wow. Yeah, so, That's there, so neat. <laughs> yeah, So there is a gold coin. And I received, um, A rosary, and that must be in the archives too. Now, whether it's in Daughter Charity Archives or Elizabethan Archives, I'm not sure, because I simply handed them into the Provincial Secretary to put them where they would go. Yeah. So I can't vouch for their being either place. Right but I know we have them somewhere.
3: Yeah. So then you, you come back here and things were still, like people were still so excited about everything happening <coughs> and it's just changed so much here. I mean, you've gotten to well, see so I many things. I think
1: the official act of the canonization had a, an electrifying effect on everybody, mm-hmm. that she was American. Uh. she was you know a woman she had been here in Emmitsburg she had named this St. Joseph's Valley (coughs) so we could relate to her in a full fuller way then she really seemed like one of us Mm -hmm. living in this valley Mm
4: -hmm. that we were
1: now living in and she had named and we knew the house that she lived in and it was here on our property.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And that home became so much more special and important and valuable. Not in dollars, but in the value of her having lived in it.
0: Right. Right. So you say that since her canonization, like just being here in Evansburg kind of took a new outlook for you, like a new meaning, a new um, treasure that you need
1: to hold on to? It took a new impetus and a new value uh, because on this property was Elizabeth Ann Seton's remains Mm -hmm. and not only were they now her only were they, just referred to as remains, but they were referred to as the remains of, at that time, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Mm -hmm. So those remains were very, very special. And I'm sure that you know why we covered the front of them with that slab of concrete, slab of marble. Yeah,
0: um, I heard it just to protect her. Is there a different reason?
1: It was for protection but it was because some group in our country was uh, ruining tombstones. They were going around into uh, burial grounds, ruining tombstones. And we thought that exposed as she was, that little, in that small coffin, it might be too dangerous Mm. and inviting difficulty, inviting them here. So we had that slab of marble put in front. And that was a process we couldn't, you know, you never can move the remains of a saint without... All types of guarantees yeah so the Cardinal was here and all that sort of he had to put his seal on when that coffin was closed his seal was on the bag that had the remains in it that they were the true remains of Elizabeth Ann Seton so we've had a lot of formality Around her candidate be advocation and canonization that have made it so um, Impressive to me Because I was present for a good bit of it
3: Yeah, and so um, You also got to meet Mother Teresa correct.
1: I beg your pardon. Did
3: you get to meet Mother Teresa as well?
1: Yes <laughs> Mother Teresa came to this country a day or two after I shouldn't say a day or two a month or two after the canonization of St. Elizabeth Seton. I didn't
3: realize it was that close. No, I didn't either.
1: As soon as she got here, she told the people who were welcoming her and with whom she stayed or with whom she traveled that she wanted to go to the shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. So Uh, we received word that she was coming and that was a tremendous tremendously important day for us and at that time we just happened to have many sisters home here so we had that whole dining area that Mm -hmm. we use now Mm -hmm. the whole thing was open okay and She spoke in the chapel near Elizabeth's remains. She spoke in the foyer of the chapel because as we came out, a lot of people were in the foyer. So in one of the pictures you probably have, I'm holding her bag, and she's (laughs) at a
0: microphone. I'm going to have to go find that picture. I haven't seen it.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm holding her bag. But in all her talks... While she was here, I was in great admiration. She said, what people need today, what people need today, what people need today is love. And we have to remember that as we meet them and greet them and welcome them and send them back to wherever they came from that they need love. Mm-hmm. And then she repeated that message everywhere in this house. And I was in such admiration of her because we think of her as living so poorly and yet she never referred to anything of that nature. It was simply a message of love. And I thanked her for that and I was so grateful to her for that, because it it fit everybody that she spoke to mm-hmm. it wasn't just the sisters it was the associates it was anybody who knew us it was drove here in a hurry so they'd be on the grounds with mother Teresa and it was just a wonderful wonderful experience of, of seeing how she could accommodate herself to us.
3: Mm-hmm. Do you think she she obviously wanted to come here because Elizabeth had been canonized yes. now and she wanted to share that experience as well. Yeah.
1: And she she went right up to the the altar of the remains and and prayed and all of us just remained in silence until she was ready. And then when we came out of the chapel, as you can tell from some of the pictures, it was in the foyer in front of that big picture Mm -hmm. of Our Lady that she started again to speak. If she saw a microphone and she thought it was waiting for her, (laughs) she she was simple enough to go up to it. Yeah. I admired her simplicity, great simplicity. Like, as you all know, she just spoke for the poor, for the poor, for the poor. And they need love above everything, love above anything else. They don't want to just be given, given things, they want love. It was a beautiful, beautiful message. I am certain there are drafts of what we thought she said in the archives.
4: Oh, yeah.
1: At least I think there would be. I know there are pictures.
3: Yeah, I'm thinking it's so interesting that, because people ask us that about Elizabeth Ann. They'll say, well, she went from New York and she had all this money. Didn't she feel bad, you know, all of a sudden becoming or whatever. And I, and I don't think she did. I don't think it bothered her.
1: Well, I don't think they know her history well, because Elizabeth became poor in New York right? before she moved to Maryland.
3: Yeah, like after her husband died. Mm. And for her, what we've taught, like we have junior history interpreters, young girls that are portraying students, and if you've had the opportunity to see them, um, they're a lot of fun. But, um, she taught them like to go out in the community and we have those stories of her going up in the mountains and taking care of people that were poor and that was what was important to her as well i think to reach out to the people and just love everyone well she seemed to get frustrated with people at times we're not going to say she didn't but you know that was her message as well so so you um had like the unique opportunity to meet some pretty impressive people i guess you would say or be here for some pretty impressive events
1: do you have a favorite i don't mean to slight anyone especially the hierarchy but a gentleman who really impressed me by his true devotion to elizabeth ann seaton was admiral watkins oh uh, did either of you know him
0: yeah he um he started sea services
1: Oh, okay He really, uh, he was a very good friend of Cardinal. Well, anyway, you you can look it up. (laughs) You can look it up. But those two were the ones that came forward and came here after the uh, canonization and wanted to do something for the service members of our country because there was a great turnout of service members from the United States at her canonization. Oh, really? And they wanted that to be preserved and become bigger. So they wanted to have what was originally called sea services pilgrimage. But as you know now, it has grown to include all of our service personnel, all the different units of that term. But it grew through Admiral Watkins and his friend the Cardinal. And they came to all the first occasions. You know I'm not sure how many we've had of sea services occasions. Of course, you can't have them right now because of COVID. Do you know? But um, It started shortly after her canonization. I know mm-hmm. that. Wow,
4: that's a long because time. Because
1: the Cardinal stopped here. He was then Archbishop of Philadelphia, I think, but he had just been named Cardinal of
3: yeah we just um in the fall, we did something um, with Elizabeth and her son William, that went in the Navy and just really exploring that, and just her worry for him um, that he would that he would lose his faith. And so we kind of talked about um, you know, that that's what she was most concerned about. So she understands that from a parent's perspective.
1: And one way of emphasizing that in the Navy. Emphasizing the Navy connection is um, elaborating a little bit on that window that's at the Naval Academy. Right. Of of St. Elizabeth. Yeah. Because that was unusual to have one faith have a window.
3: Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, yeah. Yeah, I just saw that last summer with, I took my um, kids down there to see it i've never seen it myself oh it's it's beautiful it is beautiful yeah i think it's important for the military as a whole to have um my uh, brother-in-law is a priest and he has a good friend father dan mode who is a priest for the military and um he just tells these beautiful stories like he'll arrive on a navy ship and end up doing confession for hours and even for non-Catholics because they just want someone that they can talk talk to, that they can trust. And, um, Mm -hmm. it's, so it's a really beautiful thing. And the sea services, the ceremony is just so beautiful. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's those, it's those people that just surprise us. Like some of the visitors here, we get these visitors that just completely surprise us. Their stories are so, um, Honest, and you know they're
1: just so um well see, I think a saint Elizabethan would appeal to so many people mm-hmm. because she was a mother, right, yeah, and we all have deep feelings, hopefully good feelings about our mothers. And therefore it's easier to relate to Elizabeth in some ways Mm -hmm. than women we don't know who weren't mothers. Right. They're saints, and they're wonderful saints, but they didn't share motherhood with so many as Elizabeth did. And not just one or two, what did she have, five. Five. And so different, you know, Mm -hmm. and
3: she really, well that's what we found with Elizabeth is that with each one of these people, Sisters, family members, um, she seemed to relate to each one of them as if they were the only only person in her life. Like she was so um, devoted to them, and it's just a beautiful thing, you know. Um, well,
1: I say that two of the most prominent characteristics of Elizabeth Seaton her love of the eucharist yes <laughs> her love of the eucharist was supreme and has much to teach every one of us who is of our faith and is and central to the catholic faith is the eucharist jesus himself made that very clear on the evening before he died her love of the Eucharist and her gift, oh, what a gift, her gift of friendship.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yes. I,
1: I see them as just two, two brilliant rocks holding her up for our admiration and our, our imitation. Her love of the Eucharist, because, you know, the, Jesus has said, love me and my Father and I will come. My Father and I will come and take you. What do you think of that? My Father and I. God and Jesus is gonna come and take us. Yeah, That's beautiful.
4: Yeah.
1: And then all of us, no matter who we are, what station of life we occupy. We all need friendship.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And Elizabeth offered it to everyone. Yeah. It didn't matter. She offered it to everyone. And one of my favorite little thoughts is when she's sitting up there on the mountain. Teaching the people around here on Sunday. Yeah. You know, so she, she was probably closer to the people in Emmitsburg than we realize.
3: Oh, I think so.
1: Because of that, they would be the children.
3: Well, she was so connected to the people in town as well. And you're thinking, how did she have time to do everything she did? <laughs> You know, she did so much. And like I said, she made every person feel like they were the most important. And I just don't know how she did it, you
1: know. Well, her her vast correspondence was done in late hours.
3: Like into the evening? I can't,
1: yes, late hours into the night.
4: It's still recording.
3: Um, Yeah, I like to say that too about. on my tours, because she left New York and never returned, and yet she kept these these friendships so close, you know. And and some of them she hardly saw, if at all, and yet she made them f- still feel so important in her life, you know. And and Baltimore, I think, when she left Baltimore, she only went back a couple more times, one or two times. Just to Baltimore. But yeah, not
0: far. She right. didn't go far
3: yeah so but yet these people felt still so connected to her mm-hmm. um and yeah she she just had that that way to do that, and it and she really understood each person like we in the work that we've done, we've seen how she connected with these people truly connected to them um, and yeah, I'm like, how did she have the energy? <laughs> I don't know, I only have three children. I can't do it.
1: <laughs> I love that quote that she is said to have used when she was in Italy. Oh, if I could only believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. They believe that Jesus is in the, the, or she, she may not say Jesus, I'm not sure what, how she addressed the second person of the Trinity in this quote but they believe Jesus is in the tabernacle, that he comes to them to their homes when they are sick, and he comes to them when they are dying. I love that quote. I think that should be emphasized maybe more than we've done Mm -hmm. because it brings them back to the faith. Eventually, it was the Eucharist that brought her to the faith and that account that she herself gives of going to St. Peter's that morning to receive the Eucharist. <laughs> oh,
3: it, Bridget it. had the same reaction. Like when we were, we just redid the film, and that was the part that Bridget was adamant about being in there yeah. because it is such a beautiful it's,
0: thing, it's oh. very powerful. Dish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can, yeah. yeah.
1: Well anyway, can we call it quits for the day? I oh. live here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As long so, as God lets me. Yeah. Um uh,
3: this was wonderful. Thank you for your time. Um, we
0: just love hearing
3: well. these stories. Yeah.
0: And we usually kinda of like to wrap up because with some sort of last meaningful takeaway about what Elizabeth Ann Seton meant to the individual? Because it is called friends and followers. So would you say that you're a friend of Elizabeth, a follower, both? What is your main takeaway? Like what how does Elizabeth resonate with you and your work and your life and especially being here in Emmitsburg?
1: I think as I learned more and more about Elizabeth, the part that her friendship in her own personal life, as well as her community life, and as well as the legacy she left for her followers. I am more and more enamored of her gift of friendship. Mm -hmm. She possessed friendship from early years very early years and she kept it till she was dying as we know from the death accounts Mm -hmm. not only was she a friend of the people she knew she was a friend of the god she knew Mm -hmm. her friendship encompassed everything and everybody that she knew That word friendship is almost synonymous with me for Elizabeth Ann Seton.